Many of you are aware of this already, but I have some very sad uh, and tragic news that we have to begin with. And uh, Glenn and Joy Riddle uh, are missionaries of ours uh, in uh, Thailand. And uh, this past week they were in a motor uh, bike accident and Glenn was killed uh, in the accident. And uh, Joy uh, sustained a head injury, uh, destroyed her elbow. They had to put a number of pins uh, into her elbow. And at this point in time, Joy is conscious, though she's uh, having great difficulty speaking. Um, No doubt it's been a huge blow uh, for them. It's been a huge blow for their family, for the ministry, uh, for all involved uh, with that. And so what I want to do in a moment, I want to pray for them. But one of the things I want to uh, just make note of, uh, many of you, uh, hopefully most of you saw the email that was sent out. I think their missions team uh, sent that email out about if you would like to support them, no doubt there'll be uh, all kinds of different costs for Joy's ho- hospitalization, uh, family trying to get over there uh, last minute, uh, things of that nature. But if you'd like to support them, Dwayne, is it, is it Grace Church or Grace Bible? Which, which one? Grace Church. Grace Church in Albuquerque is... Um, you, you could call them right now if you wanted to, and uh, they're accepting donations. We would certainly be willing to help you uh, get connected with them, or if, if you want to just put it into missions, we'll get it uh, passed along to them uh, as well. But certainly we want to be praying for this family. We want to be praying for this ministry. That, that's a very, very grievous uh, thing to, um, uh, to be dealing with and to handling. And so what I want to do, I want to pray for them real quick. And uh, as Brian's prayed for our time, we'll pray for them real quick and then get into uh, the scriptures. Why don't you join me? Uh, Jesus, we... <coughs> We uh, thank you, God, we thank you for the riddles. We thank you for um, hearts that long to serve you and uh, to give their lives in ministry to you. We thank you that right now um, Glenn is uh, truly celebrating, uh, no doubt. And uh, for that we rejoice. And yet uh, being on the other side of that and not um, with him, uh, we grieve because we understand the loss and uh, specifically thinking of joy in their children and grandchildren. Uh, God, we thank you for uh, sparing joy, and uh, we pray that you would restore her to a fullness of health. We pray for the family as they, uh, it seems like most of them are over there. Um, We pray that you would be with them, that you would give them great peace. Uh, Difficult times like this, oftentimes families can be difficult, and so we pray that they would be incredibly gracious and patient with one another. Uh, God, that you would sustain them, that you would comfort them in a way that only you can. And for the uh, other family members, some who are having some difficulties with visa issues, we pray that you would resolve that and allow that to be worked out quickly. And God, just that in in the entirety of this situation, that you would have uh, your hand upon this family. And God, for us, uh, for us, as we open your word, would you sustain us? Would you have your hand upon us? Would you teach us, uh, direct us, instruct us, and guide us? Jesus, we thank you for your great love. We pray this all in your name. Amen. All right, let's, let's turn our attention uh, to the book of Acts, Acts 18. I'm going to be starting in verse 24. Uh, so if you went to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, about 90% of the way through um, your Bible. And so Acts 18, we're going to start in verse 24, continuing in our sermon series on the book of Acts. And as we come to uh, this last part uh, of really the last stage, if you will, of the book of Acts, uh, we've titled it The Church Maturing. And really what we're going to see starting today and what we're going to see over the next number of chapters is that the church is, is growing up and it's acting like uh, a grown-up church and it's doing the things that, that a mature uh, church should uh, be doing. Now just, just in case you're wondering, 
At this point in time in Acts 18, uh, we're about 20 years uh, have passed since the beginning of uh, Acts. And so th- this isn't something that took place over a couple months or even a year or two. We're, we're a couple decades deep uh, into uh, what's happening here. And so lest we think that we can just turn it on uh, overnight, it doesn't work like that. Uh, but as we come to really the end of the, what will lead us into the end of the book and really the, the end of Paul's ministry, we see the church maturing. And more specifically this morning, really just kind of turning that around and, and by way of application, the title of the message is A Maturing Church. A Maturing Church. Well, what, what, what is a church that's maturing? What is a church that is growing? What is a church that, that looks the way that Jesus wants it to look? What's happening in a church like that? So let's just begin to walk through the text here. Three things that we want to highlight here this morning. But notice this first of all. Let me give you the principle up front. Begin to walk through the text. A maturing church, okay, it's going to mature in theology. A maturing church will mature in theology. There's going to be a growing and and a greater depth and a greater understanding in the scriptures and a knowledge around what God has done and how he's moved and how he's worked and how he's cared for us. Remember in 1 Peter 2, Peter talked about longing for the milk of the word, right? And, and then it's funny because you go read Hebrews 5. And what does the author of Hebrews tell him to do? He says, grow up. Quit drinking the milk, man. That's for babies. Go eat the solid food. Who wants to drink milk when you can have steak? Okay, that's essentially what he's saying. He's like, hey, it's time to grow up in this. And a maturing church, part of growing up is they mature in theology. So notice... Uh, here at the end of um, what we looked at last week, remember Paul stopped briefly in Ephesus. The whole of our text will focus on uh, uh, the, the city of Ephesus and what's happening there. And it'll comprise about a two to three year window. And Paul finishes his second missionary journey there in verse 22 and 23. And then Luke kind of is a, is a segue, um, beginning to turn the reader's attention back to Ephesus or towards Ephesus, introduces us to a guy named Apollos. Uh, and, and gives us a pretty uh, lengthy uh, introduction to who he is. Remember, Apollos is the guy in 1 Corinthians. Some followed Paul, some followed Paul, Apollos, some followed Cephas, right? That's this guy, okay? And so notice what uh, Luke tells us about him. Verse 24, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, that was a, an Egyptian community. At that, time, uh, at that particular point in time, upwards of 100,000 Jews were thought to have lived uh, in Alexandria. So uh, no doubt a huge community there. But he came to Ephesus. Now check out what Luke tells us about him as a person. I don't know about you, I'd be pretty fired up if this is how I was described. I'm guessing you're the same way. Here's here's what he tells us about him. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, some of your translations might say in the spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Like, can we not agree? Like, if you're going to describe someone, that's not a bad way to be described. I mean, I'd be all for it if you said, well, let me, let me tell you about Mike. He's uh, eloquent and he's competent in the scriptures. And I'd be pretty fired up if that was the description. I'm guessing most of us in here would be more than happy to have us described in this way. But look at this last note. Though he knew only of the baptism of John. Wait, what? What is that? Wait, 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 wait. What are you talking about here? Okay, well, hold on. Let's let the rest of the text fill this out because I think it'll bring some clarity to us, but I want you to make note of that. And so look at what happens. Verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. 
So he was competent, but not fully competent because there were some things that needed to be corrected in what he was teaching. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. Probably a pretty good sign that he received well what was instructed to him. Continuing in verse 27, when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So he goes on and he's having fruitful ministry, uh, defending the fact that Jesus was the Christ, doing so from the scriptures. Now Luke uh, takes the reader and turns their attention back to uh, what's going on in Ephesus. Look at what he says in the beginning of chapter 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, great question to ask people, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? It's kind of a presumption, right? Hey, you believe you would have the Holy Spirit living inside of you? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. What's that? Hey, have you received the Holy Spirit? Um, what is that? What are you talking about? Okay, that, that, that'd be the time to raise the red flag. Okay, that's the warning sign that something's not right. So Paul, great follow-up question in verse 3. Into what then were you baptized? It's like, why don't you give me some clarity here? What you guys were baptized, what is it that you were baptized into? And they said, see, here it is again, into John's baptism. Verse 4, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. He's like, listen, listen, listen. John was not the guy. It wasn't about John. John pointed to the guy. In fact, in John's ministry, he made it very clear that he wasn't the guy, but that he was pointing to the one to come. And in fact, if you were to go read John chapter 3, uh, in John 3, there's a really uh, interesting account where um, uh, some different Jews come to John because Jesus was baptizing some people and, and others were being baptized. And, and so they said, well, hey, they're all going to him. What are you going to do about it? And so here's what John says, or what, what John the Baptist says in John 3. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He's like, I'm not the guy. I'm just the guy that comes before him. I'm the one who announces his coming. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. He's like, listen, I'm the best man. Okay, In this scenario, I'm not the bride. I'm not the bridegroom. My buddy's getting married. I'm pretty fired up about that. But it's not about me. And that's what he's pointing them to. He goes on, he says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And then these great words, he must increase, right? Speaking of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. Now notice their response and what Luke tells us about them here. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. So here, right here, you have two parties, two individuals or an individual in a group um, who, who need to grow in some capacity. They, 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 they need to understand some things at a greater level. Now, with, let me just deal with verses 5 and 6. Sometimes we look at this, well, what do we do with their speaking in tongues and prophesying? Well, what we do with that is that was a manifestation that was used uh, sometimes, and we see it a few times in the book of Acts, to demonstrate that salvation had come. It is descriptive, not prescriptive. Luke is telling us this is how it happened here. 
Most of us, most of us, when we came to Saving Faith, didn't have that experience. And Luke's not telling us, you aren't saved unless this happens to you. Luke is just saying, this is how it was demonstrated or manifested at this particular juncture with these particular individuals. He's just describing what's happening. These two groups, these two parties, oftentimes what people do with this is, is they focus all of their attention on, okay, were they saved or not? Were the disciples saved or were they not saved? Was Apollos saved? Was he not saved? Well, well, we know by the end of this, they're both saved. But I, what I think is interesting is Luke doesn't really go to great lengths to tell us. I, th- I think he gives us some clues. I think Apollos was saved. I think the disciples were not saved. I think probably pretty compelling argument that the disciples were not saved at this particular juncture. But see, Luke's emphasis is not on whether or not they're saved What Luke is emphasizing in the text is that those who were seeking God, those who had a sincere desire to draw close to him, that God made provision for them at that particular juncture in their life. And there are all kinds of examples in modern missiology of people who will show up and it's like, we've been waiting for you. See, the issue is not, are they saved? The issue is, what did God do for those who desired to grow? See, a maturing church matures in theology... And we see these groups of people being stretched in a couple of ways. Notice this, first of all, they mature in theology through the Scriptures. Through the Scriptures. Verse 26, Priscilla and Aquila uh, take Apollos aside. They begin to explain to him the way of God more accurately. How do you think they did that? No doubt, they're using the Scriptures. Hey, listen, okay? This is what God is telling us. This is what He's teaching us. This is what He's instructing us in. In fact, I think Apollos took a cue from that because if we look in verse 28... When he had moved on to Corinth, or at least in Achaia, right, he's powerfully refuting the Jews in public. How so? Showing by the, what's that next word? Okay, with confidence, loved ones. Scriptures, right? He's showing them by the scriptures that that Jesus was the Christ. He's using the very words of God. And of course, Paul, right, and to what then were you baptized? Into John's baptism. If you read Acts 19.4, it looks a whole lot like Luke 3. And the description that we see that Luke gives there regarding the ministry of John and what he's after. See, a a church that is maturing, it's maturing in our theology. There's greater understanding of the Word of God. That that we're coming back time time and again to to God's Word. We're letting it teach us. We're letting it instruct us. We're letting it guide us. Now, just ask yourself, is that true in your life? Do you let the Word of God speak into minister in your life? And if yes, that's great. I would encourage you to continue. If not, why not? See, one of the things that's fascinating to me is to open the Scriptures and to see what God would tell us is one of the simplest things that we could do. And it's, it's not uncommon for me to have people go, well, I just don't feel like God's telling me. I don't feel like He's giving me clear instruction. I don't really know what to do next. Well, what are you seeing in the Scriptures? Um, I, I don't really read it that often. Okay, so if you're not going to do the simple thing, why would you think that God would give you a special thing? Like, if you're not going to open up the Scriptures, the thing that He's made so plainly obvious to all of us, why would we think God's going to show up in some special vision or some special dream or some special manifestation? Right, a willingness to do what's right in front of us. And a maturing church, maturing in theology through the Scriptures. And then notice this secondly, maturing in theology by the person and work of Jesus. See, the content, what they're really getting after is the person and the work of Jesus. 
Who is Jesus and what did he do? What does it mean? What's the implication of that? How does that play out in our life? What's the ramifications of these things? That's what they're really getting after, right? Verse 28, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. In 19.4, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is Jesus. See, they're pointing them back to the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus Helping to explain, helping to understand. See, this is such a critical item for us. It really is simple in that respect. We just come back to the person and the work of Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Sometimes, sometimes we're like, okay, but but what else? We've got to talk about other things. We, we, We have to move beyond that. At what point, okay, at what point would you exhaust At what point would you move beyond the power and the implication of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? Like, at what point does that become insufficient or I need something else? I mean, it's kind of crazy when you start thinking like that, right? It's like, well, we can never leave that. And it would be more than sufficient. And that's exactly where they're at here in this church that's maturing. They're, they're, They're focused on the person and the work of Jesus Now, by way of application in in respect to maturing in theology, let me just say two things about this here real quick. I want you to notice and and just begin to embrace this in your own life. But notice, first of all, as um, as this happened in their life, and really for us, that we would respond the same way, that there would be humility in receiving, that we would be humble in receiving the truth of God, that, that, that as people speak into our life, that as truth is revealed to us, that as it is made known to us, that there would be a humility to embrace that. I think for the disciples in chapter 19, that was probably pretty easy. They didn't really know what it was that they were missing. But you think about a guy like Apollos. He was competent. He was well-educated. He was eloquent. The guy had his stuff together, but he had the humility to embrace and receive what Priscilla and Aquila were willing to speak into his life. Are we humble in receiving? Second of all, notice that there was a willingness in sharing. Right, the, the, the parties, Apollos and these disciples, they willingly received or humbly received, but is there a willingness on our part to share? Are we willing to speak into other people's lives? If I identify something, if I recognize something, am I willing to say something about that? Am I willing to engage them in that particular manner, in that particular way? Right, our mission statement here is that we proclaim proclaiming Jesus and making disciples. I mean, that's exactly what's happening here. They're proclaiming Jesus and making disciples. That's what they want to see in, in, in the lives of believers and in the lives of non-believers. That's what they're about. A maturing church matures in theology. Now this theology, it does something. This knowledge does something for them. Uh, notice this starting in verse 8. Right? A maturing church doesn't only mature in theology, but it matures in sanctification. Right? Sanctification simply meaning that I look more and more like Jesus greater victory over sin in my life. But they're maturing in sanctification. In fact, I would suggest to you that any theology devoid of sanctification is nothing more than hypocrisy. And how many times, how many times have we met someone who's got all kinds of stuff up here, but nothing ever happens here? You know what I'm talking about? Knowledge, 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 knowledge. I'll be honest with you. I don't give a rip how much you know if it doesn't impact your life. And some of the people who know the most about the scriptures have the least going on for them spiritually because they got it all up here, but it never transcends anything else that's going on in their lives. 
And so don't, don't miss the fact that these two items are connected. You, you have to mature in an understanding of who God is. But, but there's no point in talking about it if it hasn't taken root in your life. And that's exactly what happens here starting in verse 8. It begins to take root. Notice what happens. He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. They're like, fine, right out of the synagogue, we're going to go to probably this rented space. Be like a church meeting in a strip mall today. Same concept. Now, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. See, it matures in sanctification. First thing we see here in verses 8 through 10, part of the maturing in sanctification is persistent proclamation. It's like every week we're talking about this, right? I mean, every time, over and over again, the book of Acts, we keep coming back to this concept of persistent proclamation, continuing to make known the truth of Jesus, what he's done, how he's moved, how he's worked. And that's what Paul's doing here. One of the things, one of the things I, that we've seen repeatedly, though we haven't really pressed into it a whole lot, but I want to press into it here for a moment, is that, that Paul didn't beat a dead horse. You know what I'm talking about? Like he went to a place, he would preach, he would proclaim, but if they weren't having it, if they weren't willing to respond, if they chose to reject, he moved on. He's like, okay, fine. You, 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 you don't want it? I'm going to move on. Now he didn't pout. Okay, he didn't quit. He didn't throw a little hissy fit like a three-year-old, like, well, this isn't what I wanted, and, you know, folds his arm and, and stomps off. He just moved on. It's funny, because Jesus said something about shaking the dust off of your feet and moving on. And see, one of the things, one of the things that, uh, when we talk about per- persistent proclamation, what I don't want you to think is that I'm just going to beat or bludgeon someone with the gospel. Because when, when someone finds themselves in a place where they're going to reject it, they're going to resist it, to continue in that may in fact harden them to the truth of the gospel, not soften them. So you start thinking about this, this persistent proclamation, but see, part of that, part of that is I'm persistent, but I'm not foolish in respect to the people. Not like, well, I'm getting the message out. I'm just doing my job, not my issue with however you might respond to it. No, no, we we want to take note of that. We don't want to be foolish or ignorant. So here's here's a few questions to just ask ourselves in respect to persistent proclamation. Here's the first one, probably the most obvious. Am I proclaiming? Am I sharing the truth of Jesus with those around me? Is it coming out? Is it a part of my life? Is it reflected in how I live? Is it reflected in how I think? Is it on my radar? Do I conduct myself in a manner where this is, this is in my mind? That, hey, I want to get to the point where, where, where the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to come out or I'm going to have the opportunity to share. Is that even on my radar? Is that on my mind? Do I think like that? Or is it... You know, Mike, if you're honest, I just, I, I'm not. I don't even think like that. Okay, we'll be challenged by this. Hear the exhortation. Okay, I'm, I'm going to start making that... Something a part of who I am and what I'm about and let God begin to work and move in me in that way. I'm going to proclaim. Second of all, am I persistent? And this is the jumping off point for a lot of us. Am I willing to keep after it? Right? Is it one and done? I did it. Check. I'm free. Or, or I did it and they didn't respond very well. I didn't really like what they had to say about me. I don't want to do that again. Or am I persistent? 
Am I going to keep going, right? When I encounter something difficult, am I going to persevere? <laughs> One of the things I kind of chuckle at is, can, can you think of a time, I can't think of a time, um, but can you think of a time in the book of Acts where they went somewhere and didn't encounter opposition? I mean, everywhere they went, something bad happened. Now, a couple of times, a couple of times, it was knuckleheads from the previous city coming up and stirring up people. But it didn't matter where they were, what was going on, they were encountering opposition. And yet we see them time and again. I mean, here we're chapter 19. They're still at it. Right? They're persistent. Am I proclaiming? Am I persistent? Here's the final one. Right? We think about this idea of moving on. Should God call us to that where they're just not going to have it? Am I looking for other places to share? Am I looking for other places to share? If I'm forced to move on, if I recognize that, hey, this just isn't going to happen, they're not interested, they're just continuing to reject, they want nothing to do with this, there's nothing but resistance. Am I thinking about, okay, well now, what's next? Where do I go from here? Maybe some of you, I, 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 was, I was challenged by this uh, this week, thinking about this. It's like, where would I even start? Where do you even start with something like that? Where, where do you even begin to go, well, where, where do you go from here? Here's just a few practical suggestions. One, let your lifestyle begin to speak into it. Becky and I have four young kids, so a large part of our life, uh, lifestyle right now revolves around uh, elementary school and sports. And so our kids playing baseball or Davis is playing soccer or Kara's in ballet. Those are natural connections, natural places for us uh, to begin to uh, connect with people and begin to look and, and have our eyes open to that. And you just think about your Lifestyle. Who does that put you in contact with? Maybe you think about common interests. Um, I've always found that the gym is a phenomenal place uh, to meet people. Um, in fact, Becky, uh, Becky had seen a woman walking around in our neighborhood a couple of times and then saw her at the gym. And of course, that's the place where they uh, begin. She's like, hey, I've seen you walking around our neighborhood. And have begun uh, a little relationship in that way. Um, other common interests might be various clubs or societies that you might be a part of, things of that nature, shared common interest people that you would come into contact with from time to time. Uh, your career, certainly your career puts you in contact with people. Now listen, listen. Um, if you work with someone who's a believer and they drive you crazy, then I'm not entirely sure what to tell you. Maybe you pray for them and tell them to repent. Okay, but if you have a coworker that's obnoxious and is not a believer, then, then the gospel might be a great place to start. Okay, because you can't expect them to respond appropriately if they're not followers of Jesus. But that certainly may be a place where you find that geography, um, the, the particular place where God places you, in your neighborhood, things of that nature. Another place that I, I talk about, um, call them highways and hedges, places that you visit regularly. Uh, every Monday afternoon, I go work at Panera for a couple of hours just to put me in contact with people I wouldn't otherwise be in contact with. And uh, it's been a great, a great source to, to begin to meet some people there. But a maturing church matures in sanctification Part of that is persistent proclamation. Here's the second item. It's the evidence of God, of God's work in our lives. It's the reality that God is at work in our life, that there's evidence that God is at work in our life. Part of the sanctification, okay, God's, God's working. Notice what happens in the text. Uh, look at verse 11. And God was doing, this is kind of funny, extraordinary miracles. What's an extraordinary miracle versus just a miracle, right? I think they're all extraordinary, but apparently these are uh, extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Verse 12 tells us a little bit about them, so that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. 
Why, that's pretty extraordinary. Right? We, we have in the scriptures Peter's shadow falling on people and they were healed in that as well. But so powerful, so profound were these miracles that notice what happens in verse 13, right? People start taking note. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had heard the evil spirits. They're like, that is working well for that guy. Let's try that. So there, there's, there's, well, let me, let me just read here. Um, <clears throat> so here's what they're saying. They're saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. And then apparently trying to cast out a demon or some evil spirit or whatever. And so verse 14 tells us there are seven sons of this Jewish high priest named Sceva. And they were doing this. And so their, their job, their ministry, whatever you want to call it, was they, they were exorcists. And so they're going around and they start doing this. Well, they come up to um, uh, kind of an interesting account here. Verse 15. So they go up to this particular guy who has this evil spirit in him. And look what it says. The evil spirit answered them. Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. Who are you? Right? That'd be kind of a terrifying moment. It's like, I adjure you in the name of Jesus who Paul proclaims. Know that Jesus guy. Got it. Heard of that Paul guy. I have no idea who you are. Who are you? Doesn't matter who you are. You're not either of those guys, so, so what, what are we after here? And so then, if you ever wanted to know whether or not UFC was biblical, here's the answer right here. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them. Like, tap out. Okay? First ever cage match right here, Acts 19. One on seven. Now see, I would have you act it out, but what happens next we couldn't really do. So that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. It's like an absolute beatdown that happens. Now here's, here's, okay, here's the point. It's the evidence of God's work in our lives. The danger, the danger in reading this and being prescriptive would go, we all have to do miracles. That's how we know that God is working. That's not what Luke is just describing to us. This is how it showed up. This is how God's work was made evident. Okay? Um, but it's not going to necessarily look that way in our lives. One of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, is God's work evident in my life? Does it show up? Is it, is it obvious? Is it tangible? Well, Mike, I don't know. How, how would I know? Well, Luke begins to describe what it would look like for most people here in the coming verses. How do I know? How's God's work evident in my life? Well, in, in, in principle form, that we're growing in righteousness. That we're growing in righteousness. Look at what the text says in verse 17 and following. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both, both Jews and Greeks. Uh, no kidding, that fear fell upon them all. And then check this out. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So we have this response that's taking place. It's quite a dramatic response, uh, I might add. And some s significant items in respect to uh, what exactly um, you and I could learn and apply in our lives. No, four things, four things here uh, in terms of growing in righteousness. Here's the first is that Jesus is worshipped. Right? The name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Extolled literally means to magnify or to, to uh, literally to make bigger or to expand. It's the notion that Jesus is greater and seen as such in my life. That, that Jesus is bigger, that he's greater, that, that he's doing more. One of the greatest evidences in, that God is at work in your life is that Jesus is greater in your life. That it's obvious to you and it's obvious to others. Is that true in your life? Is Jesus worshipped? Is Jesus extolled? Is he magnified? Is he made bigger? Notice the secondly. Also many of those who are now believers. 
Okay, we're not, we're not talking about non-believers. We're talking about believers here. The great um, emphasis for us in the church. Many of those who are now believers came. I want to underline this next phrase. Confessing and divulging their practices. See, sin is confessed. You want to grow in righteousness? That's to be confession of sin, right? The sin's got to come out. They're honest about what's going on. They're, they're, they're confessing their, their practices, divulging their practices, which we find out in verse 19 is that they were practicing magic arts. We'll get to that here in a moment. Let's talk about this idea of sin being confessed for a moment. Because by and large, by and large, evangelicals are just really bad at this. Followers of Jesus are just not good at this in a corporate or relational sense. Now we reject, we rightly reject the notion that we need some other human to be the go-between between God and man. Okay, we reject that, and rightfully so. But see, here, here's what happens is, is oftentimes in the church, what we do is, is um, we, we, we elevate, we create an, an environment that, that rightly amplifies righteousness. That's a good thing, okay? Don't, don't hear me saying that's bad. That's a good thing. But oftentimes we'll do that, and it will come at the expense of honesty and transparency. And, and, and we do that in a way that we're not, we're not real about our shortcomings. We're not real about the, the struggle and the sin in our life. We're not real about, man, I'm wrestling with this, or I'm struggling with this, or I just can't seem to get victory in this area in my life. See, we're not real about that because we emphasize righteousness, and everyone else is out there emphasizing righteousness. And see, here's what happens in the church. The church looks more and more like a beauty pageant and less and less like the war that it really is for the souls of men and women. Now, what's the whole objective of a beauty pageant? Tell me, what's the point? It's to look good, right? That's the point. I want to look good. And everything, the emphasis of a beauty pageant is your appearance. And see, don't we play this game in church all the time? Sometimes we do with our physical appearance. A lot of times we do with our spiritual appearance. I want to look good. I want people to think highly of me. Because we elevate righteousness. Righteousness is a good thing. And so I'm going to prove all the ways that I'm righteous. And we do it at the expense of being honest and being real and being transparent. And while there's a war that's being waged, now see, what's the objective of a war? It's to defeat the enemy, right? That's the point. To just be better than the enemy. Now, now um, I've never been in combat. Uh, I've been in some, in some zones where, where combat has, uh, has been taking place. There, there, there's carnage it's probably the best word to describe war. There's carnage. It's messy. Loved ones, let's be real about our lives. They're messy. It's messy. Your life is messy. My life is messy. It's complicated. There's issues. There's struggles. Sin corrupts. Sin has marred. It stains. Can, can we please, please, please come to the place where we would be willing to confess and divulge our practices? Can we come to the place where we're willing to confess sin? See, we have to be able to rightly elevate righteousness. That's a good thing, but we have to do so in a way where we're honest about who we are and where we're at. That we're at war, that there's carnage, that, that, that there's difficulty, and, and most importantly, that all of us are wicked, rebellious sinners who desperately need a Savior. The elder meeting this week, we were talking about the passage in Luke 18. You know, the one the Pharisee and the tax collector. I want, I want to go flip, flip over there real quick. I want you to see this. Luke 18. I'm going to start in verse 10. Jesus told this parable. Two guys 
And I think this is a great uh, illustration of what we're talking about right now. Right? Two guys. One's a Pharisee. And you have to understand, right, Pharisees, religious leaders. We, we tend to think of Pharisees in our 21st century context that super religious, but they totally missed the point. But you have to understand, understand how they would have understood it in that day. Those guys were, think of the most respected missionaries, most respected pastors, most respected Christians we know. That's who these guys would have been. And so Jesus begins to tell this parable. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. People have always hated tax collectors, right? I mean, that just never changes. Such a great example. All right, but so they go up. There's a Pharisee and a tax collector. Here's the Pharisee. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. God, I thank you that I'm better than those people. I thank you that I'm not wicked. I thank you that I'm not sinful. I thank you that I'm just not like them. The height of arrogance and an absolute failure to understand who you really are. Right? We're all like each other. That's the point. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. See, that's unfortunately far too often who we are in the church. Not like that guy. Not like that gal. I don't have your issue. I know more than you do. And here's who I think we should be. But the tax collector standing far off. He's like, I can't even come close would not even lift up his eyes to heaven and beat his breast saying, can you see him? God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all of us. That is all of us. And we're delusional if we think otherwise. God help us that we would all come to the place where we're saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me. We've, this is what we want in our lives. Now listen, I'm, I'm, all for, I'm all for an honest engagement of sin. I'm all for us honestly dealing with and speaking out and confronting sin and not tolerating that. That's not what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at is there should be great humility in doing so. There's, there's no room for arrogance. There's no room for self-righteousness. Jesus can come at us arrogantly. Jesus could come at us self-righteously because he really is better. You and I can't come at each other that way. There's no room for that. There's no place for that. Honesty in our approach, humility in our response. The church, church has got to be a safe place. It's got to be a safe place where I can be real about what's going on in my life. I can be real about, I'm struggling with this. I'm wrestling with this. I don't know if I'm going to get victory over this. I, I just, I can't do it. I can't do it. My marriage is falling apart. My relationship with my kids are falling apart. I just have this blow up in my life. I'm cheating at work. It's got to be a safe place, loved ones. Otherwise, we're going to be crushed in our silence and our sinfulness. Jesus' worship, sin is confessed. Here's the third thing. Verse 19, repentance is evident. Repentance is evident. A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Okay, well, how many people was that? How many books were there? Well, here, this gives us an idea. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Here's what you got to know. One piece of silver was a day's wage. So if you want to do the math on that, you're talking if you worked every single day without taking a day off, just shy of 137 years worth of labor. That's the value of the book or the books that they're burning. So we don't have like eight books. We didn't clear off part of a bookshelf. We've got libraries that are getting consumed right here. 
See, the point, the point is this. There's repentance. There's change. You can confess without repentance, but you cannot repent without confession. The distinction is, does my life change? So it's one thing to say I've got an issue. It's one thing to admit that I've got a problem. It's one thing to say I'm struggling with something. It's a whole other thing to go, here's what God's doing in me about this. Here's how God's changing me. Here's how God's growing me. And I think the question for us when we think about repentance is, what am I willing to do to pursue righteousness? Right? These guys came and they, they burned a very valuable resource. There's great financial investment in that and they burned it. Think of Jesus. Remember Jesus in Matthew 5 and he talks about um, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. I mean, is he saying literally if you sin with your hand, cut it off? Or your eye? I mean, it's like you get two cracks and then you're blind and limbless. You know what I'm saying? That's not what he's really getting at. He's not saying you actually cut it off. What he's saying is to what lengths are you willing to go to see righteousness rule in your life? How extreme, how far, to what measure would you be willing to do to see that happen? Now just ask that of your own life. What am I willing to do? What am I willing to see? What am I willing to walk away from to see righteousness take place in my life? See, true repentance will move us to that place. Repentance is evident. Here's the final one just briefly. So the word of the Lord continue to increase and prevail mightily. The word of the Lord is increasing. In a literal sense here, it's the church that's growing. In the broader sense, it's the word of God increasing and prevailing in our lives. It's sanctification. It's that I look more and more like Jesus and less and less like my old self. It's that the word of God is having a greater impact and greater victory in my life. A maturing church, maturing church, matures in theology, matures in sanctification. Here's the final thing. Here's the final thing. We won't spend too long on this riot. Um, But it impacts society. A maturing church is going to impact society. It's going to impact those around them. Verse 21 and 22, Paul sends Timothy and Erastus on to Macedonia. He stayed on a little while. Verse 23, that's really the key, I think, to the second half of Acts 19. It says, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Here we've got a riot coming. That's, about, uh, that, that's what's going to happen here in a moment. But uh, let me point this out. That the church is going to have a massive impact on society and the culture brings it to that place all on their own. The church isn't out there picketing. They're not out there demonstrating. They're not out there boycotting something. They're just living faithful lives. That's what they're doing. And then this is what comes of it. I think there's great application in what we see in our world uh, today in this. But notice some of the ways that it impacts society. Verse 24. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. Okay, there you go. There's the motive. One of the things that the church is going to do, it's going to reveal motives. It's going to reveal, reveal your motives, my motives, the motives of everybody. We talked a couple weeks ago, right? You mess with someone's money, crazy things are going to happen. And that's exactly what's happening. The church, indirectly, because of the repentance and the conviction that's happening in the lives of the people, not buying idols anymore. They're moving away from that. It's messing with these guys' businesses. And so um, 
Probably some of the worst logic you're ever going to see uh, unfolds in verses 26 and 27. Here's what uh, our, uh, our Demetrius goes on and says. And you see it here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people. Check out this argument. Saying that gods made with hands are not gods. The nerve of that guy to say that. That gods made by hands are not gods. I mean, duh! Of course they're not gods. That's implied in that. He goes on and says this, And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Kind of want to say your God can't take care of itself? Probably not a God. Right? Part Part of the impact on society is it exposes false gods for what they really are. Right? There's a sense at which verse 26 and 27 is just kind of hilarious because it's so ridiculous, but there's a sense where it's profound in exposing that. That any God that can't take care of themselves isn't really a God. Now see, Jesus needs no help. Jesus needs no help. He happens to offer help to you and I, but he needs no help. It exposes false gods for what they are. Here's the final thing. Right? It brings clarity Part of the way that it impacts society is it brings clarity to the emotionalism. You, really, you, want, you want to know what culture is really all about? Here it is. Okay, here it is in summary form. He goes on, uh, uh, Demetrius goes on his little rant, verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with not passion, not clarity, not conviction. What's that next word? Confusion. Why are we all worked up? What's going on? Huh? What? What's happening? Why? They're confused, and they rush together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him, and they were urging him not to venture into the theater. Like, man, that's probably a bad idea for you to head in there right now. And you just hang out. Look at verse 32. Some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. See, here it is right here. Most of them did not know why they'd come together. Can you see them? Can you see them? Screaming, in fact, it tells us in verse 34 that for two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So they're in this, this Colosseum-like thing, probably 20, 25,000 seats. They filled it up and they're, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Hey, bro, what are we doing here? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I don't really know. Just shout. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Hey, do you have any idea? Where? No, I don't know why. We're, they don't know why they're even there. Screaming and yelling up in arms, but no concept for why they're even bothered by it, angry about it, frustrated by it. Kind of sounds, and by kind of I mean entirely, like what you and I live in. It's no different. It's the same thing. They're emotional, they're passionate, they're fired up, but they don't know why. And the defining word to describe what's happening here is not clarity, it's not conviction, it's confusion. Loved ones, that's the world that we live in. There's great confusion. Now, now the gospel, the gospel brings clarity, it brings certainty. And while these people are emotional, they don't even know why they're all excited. And so what, what happens is the town clerk, I mean the town clerk, this is the guy to, to stop a riot, This place has got issues, okay? Town clerk 
shows up, basically says some things about um, uh, Artemis, goes on and says, hey, these guys haven't done anything illegal. Go down to verse 40. Here's, here's his sum. For we're really in danger of being charged with rioting today since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. Let's be done. Let's, let's not get in trouble for rioting. And then look at what verse 41 says. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Someone's like, hey, we don't want to get in trouble for rioting. You're dismissed. All right, and kind of like filtering out like you guys are going to do a few minutes. You're going to walk out and just kind of be talking like, well, that's kind of weird. And I don't know what we were here for. And yeah, okay, well, I'm going, I'm going back to work or I'm going home. Or, and, and that's it. I don't even know why they're there. See, because there's confusion. There's great confusion. A lot of emotion, a lot of passion, but a lot of confusion. Loved ones, we live in that same scenario. It's no different today. In the mature church, a maturing church, we're going to impact society. We're going to bring clarity. That's part of what we do is we're going to bring clarity to that. And the maturing church is going to impact those around them. It's going to see believers come to maturity. It's going to see non-believers get saved, giving their lives to Jesus. It's going to see opposition. It's going to see hostility. It's going to see this emotional um, rage, this confusion that's going on. But listen, listen, listen. The maturing church won't stop. It won't stop. That doesn't become the point of quitting. That doesn't become the place of exiting or ejection. It becomes the point of just simply taking the next step to whatever God has for us. And God help us, God help us that we would be no different in that. That we would bring clarity. That we would see believers grow up into maturity. That we would see non-believers come to salvation and then grow up into maturity. That as we face difficulties and opposition and hostility and, and some emotionally confused argument, that we would be persistent and that we would not stop. That we would be a maturing church on mission for Jesus to do the things that he's called us to do and be. Let's pray.